is the leadership of this nation. The Prime Minister is going round, he's like a mindless fish. He's swallowing every bait that's hung before him, particularly those that come from the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. What the country needs is leadership, and leadership involves an attachment to principle, it involves character, and an ability to communicate that to the people of Australia. Mr Morrison has had a chequered career. He was a good minister, but that was under the leadership of Tony Abbott, and Tony Abbott drew the broad lines of the policy in relation to those fake refugees who were kicking the door in, and he was ridiculed by the commentariat and the opposition and much of the Liberal Party, including Mr Turnbull, over the policy that he developed of stopping the flood of illegal immigrants into Australia. And Mr Morrison applied that, but he was working clearly under the direction of Tony Abbott. But it was in relation to Tony Abbott that he spectacularly failed, and that is in the allegation which he doesn't seem to really deny, that he instructed his followers to vote for Mr Turnbull, but reserved his vote for Mr Abbott when the leadership came up. And when he was a minister under Mr Turnbull, notably the Treasurer of Australia, he failed spectacularly in inexplicably attacking the self-funded retirees, the very core of support of the Liberal Party who provide the unpaid work that's needed for elections by a party, and they either withdrew from the party or they just went on strike. And that was disastrous for the Liberal Party, almost losing the 2016 election. Mr Morrison in office is far too easily distracted by issues which are not federal issues, rape and assault and race and Gay hate crimes are, of course, of great importance. They must be solved. They must be reduced. But unfortunately, they will continue. We've always had them, and I suspect, unfortunately, there will always be a degree of criminality. But this is for the police, and the police are mainly a state matter. And Mr Morrison has been too easily swayed from course not only by these issues, by, but by all sorts of scandals and trivia that have been brought before him. He must stick to the big issues. And the biggest issue, of course, at the moment is the virus. The government completely mishandled that. The politicians take credit for the fact that we have a low infection rate and fewer deaths. But what we should have done was we should have followed world's breast practice. And that was evident at the time. It was obvious that Taiwan, the Republic of Taiwan, which has experience in viruses, epidemics, pandemics, which come in from communist China, it was Taiwan that worked out world's best practice. And they've done it without any lockdowns of any significant parts of business. They haven't put businesses out of business. They haven't put people out of work. They haven't had something as ridiculous. Well, not as ridiculous, but as necessary as JobKeeper, which is shortly, or well, has just gone off. And as we know, 
more jobs. It's thought up to 150,000 jobs and about 110,000 additional businesses, businesses additional to those that have already closed, may well be seriously vulnerable. And all of that was absolutely not necessary. So we've got a situation. We have a situation in Australia where the important national issues are being ignored. And in particular, we have an obsession with global warming, a bipartisan obsession with global warming. The Labour Party has ensured that its policy is very similar now to that of the Liberal Party, but they both endorse it and they both consequently endorse our having moved from having the lowest electricity prices in the nation, the lowest electricity prices in the world, to what are among the highest electricity prices in the world. And if you have that with high labour costs, you're going to ensure that very little manufacturing will be carried on in Australia. It's about time that they reverse that. The theory of anthropogenic global warming is no more than a theory, and on it the scientists are very much divided. They are not unanimous, and there are many good scientists who say this is a lot of rubbish. And even those who believe it, like Jean Lomborg of the Denmark Centre, which is so important in this area, even he, who believes in global warming, says that the Paris Agreement is not the way to go about it because it's spending an enormous amount of money ruining economies for very little to gain. If everybody, if every nation fulfills their promises, and they won't, because many nations make promises which they will never keep, the result will be so small, the effect will be so small, if at all, that all of that money all of that pain and suffering, all of those subsidies on renewables and so on, taxpayer-funded subsidies, will be money poured down the drain. The other thing where the Prime Minister should be offering leadership is in relation to water. We have droughts, we have floods, and the water still flows out to sea. We have more water than we need in this country. It just falls in the wrong places or at the wrong time. If we harvested water particularly with modern methods of piping and tunnelling, we would be well ahead. We would be able to develop this country in a way that it has never been developed. And this leads to another matter, the housing costs in Australia. That's because everybody wants to live, particularly in one of the three capitals in the East. And the prices are completely out of control. They're very nice for the elderly who have a house. But there are a large number of young people who will never get into the housing market. And housing prices would fall considerably if more development was spread across the country. It's absolutely ridiculous. In a continent which has so much land per capita, more land than any other continent, that land prices are so high in the places where people want to live, and they want to live in those places because there's inadequate water to develop the other areas of Australia. And the other matter that the Prime Minister should be looking at, instead of playing around with silly ideas about quotas, and it is a silly idea because if you have quotas for one sex, it's not a gender, it's a sex, if you have 
quotas for those of the female sex, then you've got to then subsequently have quotas for gays, for people of different races, for the indigenous, and the list will be never-ending, and it will mean that you will not be appointing people to stand as candidates out of merit. You'll be appointing them because of their sex or because of their race. All of those things which are irrelevant in the choice of a politician. As the great Edmund Burke said, we choose our politicians, or we should choose them, for their judgment, not for their sex, not for their race. Now, it is true, and people do point this out, pre-selections at the present time don't necessarily end up in the candidate being chosen on merit. In fact, more often than not, the candidate is chosen because he or she is in allegiance with a power broker who has a, an inordinate amount of control over the party, and if the party is in government, over the government of that state or of the Commonwealth. That has to end. And the only way it can end is if parties, which get so many privileges under the law, which get so much money under the law, for example, in relation to first preference votes, that they should do something in return. The parties in return should be open, transparent, and democratic. And pre-selections should not be run by power brokers determining which one of their favorites will get the pre-selection. Pre-selections should be determined, as in the United States, particularly the Republican Party, pre-selections should be determined by primaries of registered voters, registered supporters of the Liberal Party or the Labour Party. That will take the power away from the power brokers. In fact, it's the only way of reducing their power and ensuring that we get candidates who the people think are of merit. And that's a very important thing. But the final matter, there's another matter, and it's the first duty of the Commonwealth, which Mr. Morrison is not looking after properly. And that's the mess that he has made and the previous Turnbull government made of defence. Defence is in a shocking mess. First, because of the raiding of the defence budget for the purposes, for political purposes, that is, to ensure that the Liberal Party won seats in South Australia, and that is the ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous, submarine contract. That's to buy 12 submarines, nuclear submarines, and turn them into obsolescence. Don't have the nuclear engines. Use outdated diesel engines that no power, no other power in the world, apart from Germany who have, and perhaps Japan, who have problems with nuclearization because of the Second World War. No other power, and particularly those powers, who may be our rivals and perhaps even our enemies, use, we must have nuclear submarines and we must have them quickly. These are to be delivered 
so much so at such a, a slow rate that in 2045, 2045 is the centenary of the defeat of Japan in the Second World War. There'll be an enormous maritime parade, a naval parade in Sydney Harbour. Probably the King will be there. King William, probably, in 2045. And for that parade, there still won't be a full fleet of submarines. We'll still be waiting. Well, Prime Minister, will the enemy be waiting until 2045, until we finally get round to getting our obsolete submarines? But that's not all in defence. The other matter in defence is the appalling situation concerning the morale of the defence forces. And this relates to the Brereton report on alleged criminal activity, breaches of international law in Afghanistan. This report should never have been published. The Prime Minister went ahead and published it, which was a serious error, because he did it in such a way as it removed the presumption of innocence of those suggested to have committed offences in Afghanistan. He said the report, when he, when he released it, he said it contained brutal truths. How did he know it contained truths? Only a jury satisfied that a criminal act had been proved beyond reasonable doubt can come to the conclusion that that allegation is true. The Prime Minister should not have said that. And worse, he has ignored the suggestions. I certainly made that suggestion in The Spectator. Having, having released the Brereton Report, he should have said any prosecutions will be begun by Easter, by now, by about this time. If a prosecution hasn't begun, hasn't been initiated, within, say, three months or four months, then there should be no prosecutions. Surely they have enough evidence in the Brereton Report, particularly if there are brutal truths in the Brereton Report, to go ahead with prosecutions. But no, what has he done? He set up a process which is going to go on for years. Our veterans are going to have this over their head for years with the presumption of innocence already removed in relation to people being forced out of the army? What is this doing to those who have served in the armed forces, to those who are serving now, and those who thought they might serve? It has ruined their morale. It has persuaded many people, no doubt, that service in the army will not be respected, will not be treated properly by the government of Australia. This is an appalling mess, and the Prime Minister should be spending time on this, rather than worrying about the sex of his cabinet ministers and the sex of future candidates. We should be choosing candidates on merit, not on their sex. The problem, the problem today with leadership is the politicians ignore what Edmund Burke said 
Edmund Burke said, we the people choose our politicians, our representatives, for their judgment. The politicians are not demonstrating any exercise of judgment. For example, in relation to the, the Wuhan virus, the government and WHO prefer the communist name, COVID-19, it's the Wuhan virus. World's best practice was with Taiwan, and we should have followed Taiwan. But we insisted on going ahead and having this enormous lockdown, which is at an enormous cost to the economy and to people's jobs and businesses. The problem, the problem with the politicians is that they are automatons. They don't, automatons, they don't exercise judgment. They rely on computer modeling, which is always wrong. The computer modeling, which they had when they declared the lockdown, was very similar to that which uh, was used in Britain and the United States from Imperial College London, which was highly questionable. But worse, it contained significant errors in the modeling itself, not in the modeling, but in the transposition of figures, which was only discovered months afterwards and kept quiet. And computer modeling is not always right. In fact, it's usually wrong. It's just an attempt to predict with those factors which they think they have at the moment in the proportion which the computer modelers think will be right. As the old Latin saying reads, pergamentum enit, exit pergamentum. Garbage in, garbage out. It all depends on what you feed in to the computer model as to what you get out of it. And to place great weight on it is like placing a lot of weight on in opinion polls, which can be so often wrong. The second thing governments rely on are firstly the very young advisers who fill Parliament House and who seem to get up to all sorts of mischief, which Menzies didn't have, which Chifley didn't have, Nobody thought they needed these battalions of youthful advisers who are all apprentice politicians, apprentices who will never have any real life experience before they go into politics. And in addition to those advisers, the government has politicized the public service so they don't get independent advice from the heads of the departments because the heads of the departments are their men and women. Whereas in the old days, they were genuinely independent. And finally, they go to experts outside as if experts were infallible, as infallible as the Pope would claim to be. Remember, the Pope only exercises his right in relation to making a declaration which is infallible very few times during his pontificate. I think there have been no more than about half a dozen such rulings since the doctrine of papal infallibility was pronounced. So we have this ridiculous view that experts are always right. And we have politicians saying the advice is, or the science has to be followed. This is ridiculous. Scientists, experts are usually divided among themselves about different matters. And this is not because there's anything wrong with them. It's because there is a wide scope for division. 
As any lawyer knows, once you've got your case mounted and you're ready to go, you, of course, get experts who will support that. And each side going into court, each side has experts arguing that the case is fundamentally correct. So you have experts for the for the plaintiff and you have experts for the defence. And that's very common because expertise is divided. There's no magic position in relation to expertise. It's not by consensus. It's not by majority. And there's no such thing as the science. Of course, certain conclusions become accepted over time, but even those get reversed. For example, the famous reversal of the opinion that uh, problems of the stomach, ulcers in the stomach, could only be caused by stress, nervousness, upset, and so on, and not by viruses. Will that change when some scientists found that it could be so caused? Opinions do change. The important thing is that the leader of Australia, particularly the Prime Minister, lead the party to take significant decisions. Remember, there's no significant problem in Australia. If it weren't created by the politicians, has not been made significantly worse by them. The important thing is to have a prime minister who leads and leads on the right issues and takes decisions which are of benefit to all Australians. We're not seeing that now and Let's hope that we will see that in the future. The important thing is for Australians to take back your country. Mm -hmm.